0: Jesus sought me when a stranger. Isn't that good news? Amen. 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 If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 10 to 21 in Luke chapter 13. If you're visiting with us, we make it our practice at Midtown to preach through books of the Bible. We start in chapter 1, we preach through to the last chapter, so we're in Luke And chapter 13 is the day, verses 10 to 21. Please follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for giving us Your word. We do... Praise You today that You are a God who speaks. You are not silent. You have made Yourself known very clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And You have revealed Yourself in the pages of the Bible, the holy, inspired, and errant Word of God. And we ask this morning, Father, that we would be humble enough to listen to Your Word. We pray, Father, that we would be humble enough to be corrected where we ought to be corrected. We pray, Father, that we would be humble enough to be encouraged where we ought to be encouraged, to be convicted, where we need to be convicted. Father, we pray that we would be strengthened to continue walking by faith and not by sight. Lord, we pray that Your Word would do its work among us this morning. I pray, Father, that You would keep me from error. I pray that You would grant all of us discernment, that we would hold fast to things that are true, and thus bring honor to Your name. And we do pray, Father, in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Friends, one of the things the elders have said to our church numerous times over the past year is that all we have to give you is the Word of God. I hope you recall us saying that to you. And I hope even more that you've thought through both what that means and why it matters. All we have to give you is the Word of God. What we mean, brothers and sisters, is that the Word of God, particularly as it reveals to us the gospel of Christ, the Word is the heartbeat of the Christian life. The Word is what drives us, giving us direction and power to live for the glory of God. And the Word is what sustains us, affirming to us the things that are true about God, about ourselves, and about ourselves in relationship to God. And why this matters is equally important. Without the Word of God, the church is left to flounder. It is through the Word that the Spirit's ministry is made evident among us. And it is by the Word that God's purpose of grace continues to be accomplished. As pastors, if we did not give you the Word of God in the Gospel, we would be starving you to use an abrasive image. All we have to give the church... Indeed, all the church has to live on is the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God, conforming us all by grace to the Son of God. And yet, as essential as this point is to the life of the church, and it is essential, as essential as it is, there is a tension that we ought to acknowledge as we reflect upon this statement. The tension is this. The power of God's Word in the Gospel is not always visibly evident. In the moment, if we're honest, in the moment, it's hard to see where the Word is working. It's hard to trace the activity of the Word in the course of everyday life. To use an example, I read the Bible this morning just like I did every other morning this week. And guess what? Nothing noticeably changed At least not in a way that I could measure or chart or track. And that's what I mean by tension, friends. All we have to give one another is the Word of God, and at the same time, the work, or we could say the power of that Word, is not always easy to see, at least from the human perspective. And so these questions begin to arise. How do we know that this is where God's power is found? How can we be sure that we're not missing something essential? Remember, eternity is in the balance. How can we be sure that we're not missing something essential? All we have to give one another is the gospel as revealed in God's Word. And yet, are we sure that this word-driven, gospel-focused faith is doing anything? And that brings us to Luke 13. That brings us to Luke 13. On the surface, this passage has all the hallmarks of a typical scene in Jesus' ministry. There's a miracle, and there are some parables. Those are not insignificant things, but we've seen them before. It would be easy just to read over these verses without giving them much thought. But that would miss the point of this passage, friends. Yes, Jesus performs another miracle in these verses, but did you notice that it's the first miracle in a long time? There was the short account of a miracle in chapter 11, but the last detailed, lengthy description of a miracle happened back in chapter 9. It's been four chapters. It's been a while. And that's a clue that something significant is going on. Along with that, the parables in this passage are also unique. These are parables about the kingdom of God. To what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Jesus says. Matthew and Mark have these kinds of parables a lot more frequently. These are the only parables about the kingdom that Luke includes. It's the first miracle in a long time, it's the only parables about the kingdom. Something unique is happening. And when you put those things together, you begin to see what this text is doing in Luke's Gospel. This text is a snapshot of how Jesus' Word works as He proclaims the Kingdom of God. This passage is showing us the right way to think about the progress of Jesus' Word. How does it work? How is its power made manifest? And the point is to show us that regardless of opposition... Regardless of appearances, and regardless of what we can measure or chart, Jesus' Word does come with power. Jesus' Word, as proclaimed in the Gospel, is the expression of the kingdom's unstoppable growth, despite what we can see. And so what we need to do this morning is track the progress of of Jesus' Word in this passage. How does it move? What does it do? And we need to do this with the realization that the passage is certainly teaching us about Jesus' ministry, that's true, but it's also teaching us how to think about our own lives and our own efforts to minister in Jesus' name. So we need to note these three features that mark the progress of Jesus' Word. Before we jump to do that, I want to give you just a brief clarification from the start so that hopefully you won't misunderstand what I'm talking about this morning. When I say Jesus' Word, I mean more than simply the words that He speaks in this text. Jesus' Word is the expression of His person, His power, and His authority. Jesus' speaking is His doing in the Gospel. The word, his word is the outworking of his sovereign role as the king over God's kingdom. So by Jesus' word, I don't simply mean the words that he speaks, though it certainly includes that. It's not less than that. It's more than that. I mean the power that his word conveys, particularly as the gospel of the kingdom of God. So that's what we mean when we say Jesus' word this morning. With that in mind, let's note these three features of how His Word works, how His Word progresses in Luke chapter 13. The first feature focuses on the miracle in verses 10 to 13. Jesus' Word frees the captive. Jesus' Word frees the captive. In verse 10, we find Jesus teaching in the synagogue. This is not the first time we find Jesus in a synagogue, but it will be the last time. At least here in Luke's Gospel, this passage is something of a breaking point between Jesus and official Judaism. This is the last time we find Him in a synagogue. And it's important to note that Jesus is not simply attending synagogue, He's teaching. That is, Jesus is opening up the Old Testament Scriptures and He's expounding the truth of God's Word for everyone to hear. That's key for this passage, friends. Verse 10 presents Jesus in a position of authority. His Word, His teaching is the focus of this gathering. But then in verse 11, the entire tone of the scene changes Luke introduces us to a woman whose life is marked by prolonged suffering. Notice again, verse 11. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Friends, there's a couple of things we ought to note about this afflicted woman. First of all, her condition is protracted and it's severe. Clearly, there's been no one to help this woman because she spent 18 years of her life hunched over. If you've ever had back problems, perhaps your sympathy for this woman goes a little deeper than most folks. I had a mild back injury a couple years ago and it was pretty disruptive for my quality of life. Imagine not being able to stand up straight for 18 years. I just would have given up. So the physical difficulty is monumental. Her condition is protracted, it's severe. There's no one to help her. The second thing, though, that we ought to note about the woman is that her condition has some sort of spiritual component. Notice that Luke says she has a disabling spirit. And if you look down at verse 16, you'll see that Jesus says Satan has bound this woman. So there's some spiritual dimension to the woman's condition. How does that work, we ask? I don't know. And Luke doesn't tell us, so we shouldn't speculate. It's enough to say that the woman's physical condition has some sort of spiritual root. She's afflicted physically and spiritually with a disabling spirit. And that point, friends, helps us think about this miracle from a bigger perspective. The woman in verse 11 pictures for us life under the curse of sin. She pictures life under the curse. She is crushed under the weight of spiritual oppression. And in her own body, she is enduring the reality of a broken world. You see that bigger picture? It's a living illustration. It's a flesh and, flesh and blood example of life under the curse of sin in a fallen world. Now, that's not to say that the woman's condition is caused by her sin. That's not my point. And that's not to spiritualize the scene as though it were something less than historical. It's certainly historical, just as every scene in the Gospels is historical. But that's the powerful connection, friends. Here we have a glimpse in real life of what it's like to live under sin's curse. It crushes you and keeps you from wholeness. It's oppressive, it's debilitating, and it leaves one seemingly without hope. That's... The woman in verse 11. Everything changes though in verse 12. And it changes because Jesus speaks. Notice the Lord's Word, verse 12. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. Friends, the first thing that should get your attention there is that Jesus initiates this encounter. The woman doesn't come up to Jesus Jesus summons her. Jesus calls her to Himself. This is interesting. The verb called in verse 12 is the same verb used in chapter 6 when Jesus summoned the 12 disciples to Himself. In fact, this passage and chapter 6 are the only instances of Jesus using this verb to call people to Himself. And that's the key. This is a word of authority. This is a summons. It is a call that not only invites, but then draws and brings in. In a way then, Jesus' call, listen to me on this, Jesus' call, His summons, helps us understand that the focus of this miracle is actually not the woman as sympathetic as she is to us. The focus of this miracle is Jesus and what His Word can do. That's where your attention should be. On Jesus and what He says. And what Jesus' Word accomplishes, friends, is nothing less than freedom. Freedom! For 18 years, the woman has had no relief. But in an instant, Jesus' Word frees her from bondage. Jesus' word with a power all of its own dispels the disabling spirit, fixes whatever physical ailment existed, and restores the woman to wholeness with a word. He speaks and freedom follows. Now you might be asking, yes, Jesus speaks, but then He has to help the woman stand up in verse 13. What's that about? That's true. Verse 13, He does help the woman stand up. It's unusual. For Jesus to use physical touch in His miracles, it happens only a handful of times. And it does here. But friends, the point is to demonstrate the effectiveness of Jesus' Word. Again, notice the progression. He speaks first, and then He helps her stand up. He speaks with power, and then He acts with compassion. His Word frees her from the disabling spirit, and then with kindness. Jesus proves the effectiveness of of that Word by lending the woman his hand. In fact, the point of verse 13 is not the physical touch that Jesus employs, but the immediacy of the healing. Immediately, Luke says, without delay, no gap, right now, immediately, Luke says, the woman is delivered. This is the power of Jesus' Word, friends. It frees those in captivity. And in response, the woman gives glory to God. You see it there at the end of verse 13, she glorifies God. That might seem like a small thing, but it's actually profound. Notice that the woman doesn't glorify Jesus. She glorifies God. That's not to say that the woman ignores Jesus. Far from it. Rather, the woman recognizes the truth in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the one who healed her, but she gives praise to God. Why? Because God is working in and through Jesus. And she sees it. And so she gives praise to God. Or, another, or to say it another way, the woman's response tells the truth about Jesus. <laughs> she tells the truth about Jesus. Here is the one who has God's redemptive power to restore those who are broken. Here is the one who has the authority to crush the curse of sin. Here is the one who brings in the kingdom of God, a kingdom where darkness is dispelled and wholeness is restored and freedom is given by grace. Here is that one. If the woman's life pictures the curse of sin and its crushing effects, then her healing pictures the coming of the kingdom of God. And so the point here is to call to us To make a very simple response. We ought to marvel at Jesus' word. We ought to be stunned at the power and the authority that overcomes the brokenness of sin in an instant. What no doctor and no expert could do, Jesus does with his word. His word comes with power. His word comes with authority. And his word frees the captive. Now, if we were writing this scene ourselves, we might think that this is a good place to stop. The woman is delivered, God is glorified, so let's just go home and rejoice. That's not how things work in the gospel, though. Just as we need to understand the power of Jesus' word, we also need to understand that not everyone responds to that word, at least not positively. That's the second feature in tracking the progress of Jesus' word. From verses 14 to 17, Jesus' word frees the captive and Jesus' word also encounters opposition. His word encounters opposition. Luke describes the ruler of the synagogue in verse 14. This man is responsible for the community's public worship. So he's a man of some religious standing. He has probably a high reputation in the community. But his response is entirely the opposite from the woman's. Notice what he says, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Hmm. I imagine him saying that in a very nasally voice with his finger pointed out. This is like the Ebenezer Scrooge of Luke's Gospel. He's cold-hearted. He's more concerned with status than with people. And he's ruthless in his insistence that everyone follow the official policy. Don't break from it. Come on the six other days and be healed. Never mind that you had this affliction for 18 years. It's the Sabbath day. Come on another day. In the ruler's mind, Jesus broke the Sabbath which is not true as we're going to see in a moment. But still, in the ruler's mind, Jesus broke this, he broke the Sabbath. He broke the commandment. So the ruler is incensed. He's indignant, Luke says. He's so angry that he's blind to what God is doing. For all of his religious standing, this ruler doesn't have the eyes to see anything. And so Jesus rebukes him, verse 15. Look at what the Lord says. You hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So as before, when Jesus confronts the religious establishment, His point of contention is their hypocrisy. And that's the same point here. This ruler has a hypocritical double standard. He treats his animals with more compassion, even on the Sabbath, than he's willing to show to this woman. And this woman is a daughter of Abraham, no no doubt. She's an heir of the promise. She's an heir of the promised blessing. She's a person made in the image of God. She has more value than your donkey, Jesus says. So if you show compassion to your animals, why not show compassion to those who are heirs of the promise? You see, it's an inescapable moment of conviction for this uptight, synagogue, religious, self-righteous ruler. He's been caught. He's been caught in his hypocritical use of God's Word. He's been trapped by Jesus. He thinks that honoring the Sabbath commandment means burdening people under the law. But all that proves is that the synagogue ruler doesn't understand the very commandment he purports to uphold. If he truly understood the Sabbath, he would be celebrating what Jesus did, not condemning him. In fact, we need to emphasize this point for a moment. This is significant. Notice that Jesus uses the language of moral necessity in verse 16. Look look there, he says the woman ought to be freed. Ought. Ought. It's morally necessary. The point is that Jesus' action is not only permissible, but commendable. It wasn't just allowed, it was right and good and glorifies God. You could even go further. By freeing the woman, Jesus fulfills the very purpose of the Sabbath commandment. Why did the Sabbath exist? For the blessing of humanity and for the glory of God. The Sabbath was meant to provide rest and refreshment from the burdens of life in this fallen world. The Sabbath promoted wholeness. So, by freeing the woman, Jesus actually fulfills the very purpose of the Sabbath commandment. All the synagogue ruler is proving is that he's missing the point. Not only of the miracle, but also of the law and the Sabbath and the kingdom of God and even of the Messiah. The crowd, for its part, appears to understand what happened at least right now. Look at verse 17. As Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. I don't think this means that everyone in the crowd Responded to Jesus' word with faith. But it does indicate that the ruler's hard-heartedness has been exposed. They see what happened. Jesus' adversaries are put to shame. Right now, in this moment, it's clear that Jesus speaks with more authority and with more truth than the religious establishment of Israel. And that's perhaps a point of application for us. Friends, here's the place where we can build a bridge from Jesus' day to our day in order to make a a bit of application for us. If you didn't know anything about the storyline of Jesus' life, whom would you expect to respond positively to Him when He came? You would expect someone like the synagogue ruler, right? Right? This is a highly religious man. He's familiar with the Old Testament. He's an official within Judaism. This is who you would expect to respond positively. But the opposite proves true. In fact, the opposite proves true time and time again in Jesus' ministry. It's the religious official who responds so hard-heartedly to Jesus. In the context of Luke, this is foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem where he's killed by the religious leaders of Israel. And there's a principle there for us, brothers and sisters. We ought to expect opposition to Jesus' word, and at times we ought to expect it from surprising places. We ought to expect opposition to Jesus' word, and at times we should expect it from surprising places. Just put it very plainly, it was religious people who hated Jesus the most. Why is that? Why did the religious people hate Jesus the most? It's because the gospel of the kingdom threatens those who are religiously self-assured. If you're confident in your religious performance, the one thing you can't tolerate is the gospel that tells you your performance isn't good enough. The Gospel threatens the religiously self-assured. It's what we see in this scene. The Gospel of the Kingdom, the biblical Gospel, tells us that our only hope for deliverance is the mercy and power of Christ. We can't free ourselves. We can't keep enough Sabbaths. We can't obey enough commandments. At the end of the day, the only person who's freeing sinners from their captivity is Jesus by His Word and not us by our works. And that message, friends, that gospel message offends those who are religiously self-assured. It offends people who think that they've done enough good things. And so we need to learn this principle. We ought to expect opposition to Jesus' word and at times from surprising sources. Listen, we're, see, we're seeing this in our day just as clearly as Jesus saw it in His day. Perhaps the most vehement opposition to the biblical gospel comes from those who profess to be very religious. Think about it. It is self-professed religious people who are leading the charge in suggesting that God's punishment of sin is not eternal. It's not secular people who are writing books saying that hell isn't eternal. It's religious people. It is so-called religious organizations that are pushing the view that God's Word does not require adherence to biblical views of sexuality. It's even some religious leaders who are now arguing that certain kinds of sin require more restitution than what is found in the gospel's call to repent and believe. You can go online and watch purported religious teachers saying in response to certain kinds of sins, you can't just preach the gospel to that. You need more than the gospel for that. Really? That's concerning. And it proves the point that we ought to expect opposition to Jesus' word and we ought to expect it from surprising places. The principle proves true. True. You ought to expect it from surprising paces. Religious people opposed Jesus the most. And we see some of those same trends in our own day. Now that sounds like a troubling situation to be in, doesn't it? Our first two points of the sermon appear to be at odds with one another. I hope you listen to sermons critically. And if you do, the first two points of this sermon seem to be at odds. Jesus' word has the power to free... And his word brings opposition. How do you square those two? Where is the confidence that Jesus' word is working as it should? Or to use the question from our introduction, how do we know that banking our lives and our ministry on Jesus' word is the wise way to live? Well, let's consider the third feature of the passage that brings some resolution. From verses 18 to 21 Jesus' word will triumph, but in unexpected ways. That's the third feature. Jesus' word will triumph, but in unexpected ways. Before we look at the parables, I want you to note that word, therefore, in verse 18. See it there? Jesus said, therefore, and then he tells the parables. Parables. Friends, that word, therefore, tells us that we ought to read the two passages together. The miracle and the parables go together. How do you know that? Because Luke links them with a therefore. The parables, then, are teaching us how to understand the power of Jesus' word in the context of opposition. The parables explain how the first two points go together. How do we understand the power of Jesus' word In a context of opposition, that's what the parables are telling us. So let's just look briefly at them, both of which are making a simple point. First off, the parable of the mustard seed, verse 19. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The mustard seed was the smallest known seed in Jesus' day. But in the parable, that small beginning eventually brings monumental growth. The the seed produces a plant so large that the birds of the air can come and make nests in in its branches. The point of the parable is this. We must not judge the kingdom of God based on its appearances at the beginning. We must not judge the kingdom of God based on its appearances at the beginning. Just because Jesus' ministry appears small now does not mean that God's Word has failed. Just because there's opposition in the present, does not mean that God's purposes have been deterred. Like the mustard seed, the gospel of the kingdom will bear fruit so large that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be brought in. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel use this same image of birds nesting in branches to symbolize all the nations coming to live under the rule of King David's heir. Jesus is picking up on that. Not only is it going to bear fruit, it's going to bear fruit so large that salvation will spread across the globe. Again, let's take to heart the point. Don't judge Jesus' ministry, Jesus' Word, based on its small appearances at the beginning. The second parable is about leaven, or yeast, and it makes a similar point. Notice verse 21. The kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Typically in the Bible, leaven is a negative image. Here Jesus is using it positively. It's a positive image. My wife has been baking a lot of bread lately. You should be envious of me because it's delicious. And it's amazing to me how a little pack of yeast can change an entire batch of dough. Just a pinch, really, of leaven. And these stodgy lumps of flour that don't look appetizing at all turn into delicious, light, fluffy loaves of bread. It's amazing. Something so small can transform something much larger than itself. So it is with the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying. At the moment, God's kingdom appears like a small measure of leaven in comparison to all the rival kingdoms of this world. But in the end, the kingdom of God will triumph. Through the gospel, the kingdom of God, like leaven, will spread throughout the entire world until the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk chapter 2. Like leaven, the kingdom will undoubtedly spread. Once you put it in the dough, you can't stop it. Once the kingdom breaks in, you can't stop it, Jesus is saying. So put the two parables together and use them as the lens to think about Jesus' ministry. Put the parables together and and look at Jesus' ministry through that lens. At this point, right now in Luke 13, Jesus' ministry appears very small. Even the religious establishment despises Him. The people you would most expect to follow Him don't. They kill Him. But there is an incredible transformation coming, Jesus is saying. The power of the Gospel is so great that it will overcome all opposition. It will spread throughout all the world until salvation comes to every tribe, tongue, and nation. The key response then for Jesus' disciples is not to judge the work of the Gospel by what you can see in the moment. Don't judge the work of Jesus' Word by what you can measure and chart and see right now. Don't judge the power of Jesus' Gospel based on what you can understand in the present. Remember that in God's kingdom, we walk by faith and not by sight. Don't judge the power of Jesus' word based on what you can see right now. Of course you can't see what it's doing. That's the whole point. So that we would trust God and walk according to, him, to, to, according to His word in faith. And listen, that includes the progress of the gospel in your life, brothers and sisters. That includes the work of God's Word in our church. Speak very frankly to you here at the end. It's very easy to look at the mustard seed of our church and conclude there's nothing happening here. It's very easy to look at the tiny measure of the Gospel's influence in our culture and think this Word-driven Christianity isn't doing anything. We need a refresh. It's very easy to finish another day of walking by faith and living according to the Scriptures and thinking to yourself as you lay down to go to sleep. This is pointless. I mean, this is pointless. Building my life on the Bible isn't doing anything. I know it's easy to think those things because I think those things a lot about myself and about our church, and about our world. I know it's easy to think those things. But brothers and sisters, this is where we need to remember precisely what the Lord is teaching us in this passage in Luke 13. This is where we need to reflect on the parables of the kingdom. God's kingdom doesn't work the way we would expect it to. It doesn't work according to our definition. It doesn't operate according to the world's standards. Jesus' word will triumph His word will accomplish His purpose. He frees the woman immediately. His word will do that. But, His word will do that through the slow, often unnoticed growth of the mustard seed. His word will do that through the quiet, sometimes imperceptible effect of the leaven. So don't lose heart, Jesus is saying. Don't lose heart. Don't conclude that opposition means failure. Don't assume that slow is bad. Don't think that incremental growth is somehow less than ideal. It's not. That's how the kingdom grows incrementally. That's how the Word does its work. Man, if I could like wave my magic pastoral wand and get every Christian in America to understand one thing, it might be this... The Word of God does not work with a flash and a bang. It doesn't work instantaneously. It works like a mustard seed. It works like leaven. It works slow and quiet and steady and imperceptible over time. And yet it is working. And the work is unstoppable. It's the unstoppable growth of God's Word in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, I, just, I want to be direct with you as a pastor... Many Christians in our day want to be kingdom-minded. I'm sure you see that all the time. You hear people talk about wanting to be kingdom-minded, and there are numerous mission statements out there about advancing the kingdom and, you know, expanding the kingdom and whatnot. But the reality, brothers and sisters, the reality is that being kingdom-minded means devoting your life to the slow, steady work of God's word. In and through the gospel. Do you want to be about the kingdom? Then be about God's word. That reveals his kingdom. In and through Jesus Christ. Lately. I have found myself praying the Lord's prayer. Far more than I've ever prayed the Lord's prayer before. It's really the only thing that I've been praying. For myself. And for our church. Father your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will, not my timing, but God's will in God's timing. Would you pray that with me over the course of the next month for our lives as Christians and for our church? Would you pray with me that God's will would be done, not ours, and that His will would be done in His time through His Word? Don't lose heart. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't, don't lose heart. Keep banking your life on the Scriptures. Keep gathering for worship under God's Word. Keep trusting the Gospel to do its work in God's time and not ours. I know that it seems small now, but it's like a mustard seed. One day, the fruit is going to be far larger and more abundant than anything we could ask or imagine. Don't lose heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for faith to be abundant in our lives so that we can do what we read in Psalm 27 earlier this morning. That we can wait for the Lord, be strong and be of good courage and wait for the Lord. Father, we don't always know how to do that. And we are very aware of our limited abilities to do those things in our own strength. And so we pray, God. We pray for the faith to believe that your word is working. That your spirit is bearing fruit in and through the gospel. We pray, Father, that we would remember the power of Jesus' word that frees the captive. And that when it seems like that word is opposed at every turn, that we would also remember, Father, that your ways do not operate according to the world's ways. And that we would see the work of your word in our lives through the lens of these parables, that it's the slow, small, steady, often imperceptible growth that bears the fruit. Help us to believe that, God. Help us to repent of where we have wanted Your kingdom to operate according to our will and not Yours. Help us, Father, to repent where we have demanded that You hurry up and meet our timetable. Help us, Father, to be humble enough, humble enough, to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.